It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Oh, yeah, it's Friday, November 12, 2021. Happy Friday to all of you. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it genuinely every single day, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, and around the clock on the podcast, which is on demand and free at GuyBensonShow.com, including on the weekends with Bonus Benson. GuyBensonShow.com on social media, at GuyBensonShow. That's Twitter. That's also Instagram. Give us a follow, at Guy Benson Show. Give me a follow, at Guy P. Benson, both of those same platforms. We are broadcasting from the free state of Florida today, West Palm Beach to be specific. Happy to be here. Hello, Florida. If you're a Floridian, I'm waving out the window here in the makeshift studio at the Guy Benson Show. Here's what we have on tap today. Three guests. You know them all, in all likelihood. Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent. He will join us. Jen Psaki was back at the podium, recovered, thankfully, from COVID, so she circled back to the podium. She returned. We'll talk about the press conference today and some of the issues, quite frankly, plaguing this White House. Andy McCarthy will be here with some legal analysis on the Rittenhouse trial and another story that I want to get to with him that is almost uh, off the radar completely which is stunning to me. It is a very big story on foreign policy. We'll get to that with Andy in our middle hour. Peter Ducey's coming up later this hour, I should have mentioned. And in our final hour, Kat Timpf. It's Fridays with Kat. God knows what sort of nonsense we'll get into with her. But it will be nonsense, and it will be fun and entertaining. That's just after 5 p.m. Eastern for the happy hour. So that's our roadmap. Let's bring you a Fox News alert and the statistics. As we do every program, COVID cases confirmed in the U.S., 46.8 million. Multiply that a couple times over. That's closer to the real figure. The death toll, Americans who died with or of COVID over these last 19 or so months, 759,310. The Dow is up today, 148 points right now. It is just a few ticks higher than 36,000, currently trading at 36,069, 51 minutes and change to go in the trading week. We'll keep an eye on that, as we always do. We open the program today with a few interesting findings from nonpartisan sources about the Democrats' build back better, quote-unquote, social infrastructure plan. This is the reconciliation bill, the Democrat-only spending spree multi-trillions. They say it's, you know, 1.75. A lot of that is smoke and mirrors, where they're starting and stopping certain years to try to squeeze it all in, make it seem lower than it actually is. It is an absolutely gargantuan sum of money. And just coincidentally, they insist that all the problems, 
plaguing the country, some of which they themselves and the Biden administration have exacerbated, all of these problems will be resolved or mitigated by Democrats spending trillions of new dollars, including the problem of inflation, they tell us. Now, there are a few complicating factors here that I want to bring to your attention. Let's start with this one, and it has to do with the rich. You know, the the dreaded, terrible, awful rich. What we were told about this plan, and just the overall Democratic project here, is that they were hoping to level the playing field for a more fair and prosperous country by holding the rich accountable, making the billionaires and the millionaires pay their, quote, fair share, right? And we will improve from the middle out, or whatever, you know, the the buzz phrases that they use all the time, their talking points. Well, as it turns out, that one of the uh, major components of this bill And this is according to an Obama economist, by the way. So this is not a right-winger who is just trying to sink the bill and is making stuff up. This is a Democratic economist. And I have seen some lefty lefty commentators scratching their heads publicly, like on Twitter and elsewhere, saying, wait, what, what are these Democrats doing? I'll tell you what they're doing. They have included in this bill, at the insistence of some of these blue state, Democrats, often in affluent suburban areas, a restoration of the SALT deduction, which was eliminated under the Republican tax reform a few years ago. Remember the one that they said was Armageddon and terrible, was going to kill everyone and be awful and raise taxes on middle class people while cutting taxes for the rich or whatever? I mean, they're wrong about almost everything. The economy soared after that bill passed. But there have been Democrats desperate to get the SALT deduction back in because their rich constituents are demanding it. These are wealthy people who live in high-tax states, blue states, who want to be able to deduct a significant amount from their federal tax, from their, uh, federal tax burden based on the high taxes they pay at the state level. And it's called the SALT deduction. It went away under the 2017 plan, the Republican plan, and now these Democrats are trying to put it back in. And this is straight up a tax break for rich people. Blue state, high tax state, rich people. And this is what the Democrats are prioritizing in their bill. And Mark Goldwyn, who is this Democratic economist, tweets this, and he's got the analysis and the chart backing it up. Thanks to the salt cap increase in this Build Back Better plan, more than two-thirds of millionaires will get a tax cut under Build Back Better. (laughs) I, I mean, I have to laugh. How often do these people run around telling working class people and middle class people, we're on your side? We've got your back. We've got to make sure that these millionaires are paying their fair share. Right, and they get their applause. And then the bill that they've crafted, 
That is a Democrat-only bill. The Republicans have not a single fingerprint on this legislation. The bill that they're getting ready to try to pass out of the House from Nancy Pelosi, Democrat-controlled House, would give two-thirds, according to this analysis, again, the Democratic economic analysis, two-thirds of millionaires in this country would get a tax cut from the Democrats, which is hilarious. So I want you to hear that. If you are not a millionaire, and if you've heard the Democrats for years railing against millionaires and talking about fair shares, which, I mean, it's like every third word, they utter that phrase on repeat. Do they actually believe it, though, because they're actually gearing up to give a tax cut to millionaires? So that's just one piece of this. And you might say, who cares? Why should Republicans care? Why should conservatives care? We don't have a problem with millionaires. It's the other side that has a problem with millionaires and demonizes success and wealth. Why, you know, why would we oppose that? I actually uh, don't necessarily oppose it, although I think that getting rid of the SALT deduction was fair. It helped the math for the tax reform and tax cuts work a few years back. And I don't think that you should necessarily be able to write off from your federal taxes your high state tax burden, which is sort of like you know a way of taxpayers, federal taxpayers, subsidizing your decision to live. These are off, you know, these are almost all rich people to live in these blue states. Now, if you want to elect Democrats to run your state and hike your taxes, I'm not sure why you should get a subsidy for that in the federal tax code. Right, so that's that's the counterpoint. But I'm not really not I'm not that fired up about the millionaires getting a tax cut thing. Although some people are, I saw Chris Hayes, for example, MSNBC is like, what what are these Democrats doing? He's like, this seems really sideways. Well, you might care more about this development, which is related. Now I'm reading from the New York Post, but this is based on an analysis from the Tax Policy Center. And if you are a policy wonk at all, you might recognize the Tax Policy Center as a center-left nonpartisan organization. Their analyses are not often super favorable for Republicans. They lean in the other direction. They have looked at Build Back Better. Forget everything I said about the millionaires, although that's all true, apparently. Many millionaires in blue states... Rich, rich people are going to get a tax break if this is the bill that they pass, the Democrats. Pay more attention if you're a middle-class person. Ready for this one? President Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda would raise taxes on up to 30% of middle-class families, despite his campaign promises not to hike taxes on anyone making under $400,000 per year, according to a new analysis. Quote, taking into account all major tax provisions, roughly 20 to 30% of middle-income households would pay more in taxes in 2022. That's from an analysis published late yesterday by the nonpartisan, and as I said, left-leaning, Tax Policy Center. So up to roughly a third of middle-class households would get a tax increase under Build Back Better. So they're cutting taxes for millionaires with this SALT thing, 
and they are raising taxes on millions of middle-class families. That's the plan under Build Back Better. Does that sound better to you? If you're a middle-class earner or household, are you feeling reassured that you will not be part of this 20 to 30% who will get hit with higher taxes? And by the way, if they get rid of this provision, they've got to figure out where that money comes from somewhere. Right? This is the big fallacy, that it's always about millionaires and billionaires and the rich. Ultimately, to pay for all of this crap that they're constantly trying to drive just the government's role and spending higher and higher, there's not enough rich people to come close to footing the bill. They're going to have to start squeezing the middle class. And here, in what they want to be you know, their, their signature accomplishment of the Biden presidency, they're trying to cut taxes for millionaires, and they're going to raise taxes, according to this Tax Policy Center analysis, on millions of middle class people in this country. Remember, Biden ran for president. I'm Mr. Compromiser. I'm Mr. Unity. I'm Mr. Moderate. I'm Mr. Normalcy. And mark my words, you've got my word as a Biden. I will not raise your taxes if you're making under 400 grand. Oh, well, oops, actually, he will if this passes, which he wants it to. He's urging Congress to pass this bill. And there are certain components that we've already talked about. There were other elements in previous iterations that were already breaking the tax pledge, the $400,000 thing. This is just completely shattering it. This is raising tax rates on millions of middle-class people. In addition to the concerns about you know, the, the nicotine tax, for example, that's been under consideration. They had a gas tax in there for a while. That was being discussed. They decided not to do that. And that actually is in the... New York Post piece as well. Quote, the Tax Policy Center said, these policies will hit families indirectly by limiting companies' return to shareholders, which include workers and those investing for retirement. A proposed increase in the nicotine tax could also increase tax burdens across all income brackets. So, you know, working class, middle class, everyone would be impacted by that if you're a nicotine user. I didn't remember any sort of loophole for nicotine users in the promise from the president when he's running for president. This is from the Tax Policy Center. Quote, in general, the combined effects of these changes would result in many households paying higher taxes in 2023 than in 2022. They would shrink the average tax cuts for low-income households and raise taxes slightly for moderate-income households. That's part of their analysis. So it would get worse again the following year. This is their build back better agenda here. Tax cuts for millionaires who live in blue states that choose to live in high tax places. And now it is revealed tax increases for the middle class. About as brazen and direct a violation of a campaign promise as you can get. And if they start tinkering with this, where does that money come from? I mean, I mean, this is just, Republicans are sitting there begging House Democrats to vote on this bill at this point. These moderates are going to vote for tax increases for the middle class, tax cuts for the rich. <laughs> Imagine the campaign ads. This is a problem for the Democrats, and we'll see how and if they can solve it. Build back better. 
Uh-huh. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're just getting started. It is Friday. Smile on your face, please. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for listening. So this was a headline today. Washington Post, a record 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in September as labor market tumult continues. This is the great resignation effect. More than 4 million people, almost 4.5 million Americans, quit their jobs in the month of September. That's the new report. And this is a complicated phenomenon. There are different reasons behind this and various contributing factors. One of them, I'm confident, is vaccine mandates. And we have just such a messed up labor market right now. There is absolutely a labor shortage. You can feel it. Then there's the supply chain related shortages of goods. So shortages of goods and services. That's what we're experiencing right now. As the price of things keeps going up thanks to inflation. ABC News headline, most Americans are afraid of inflation and plenty blame Biden. Imagine that. As they should. Right, the buck stops with the president. He said he was going to come in and crush the virus and get us back onto the track to the economic uh, prosperity that his party couldn't deliver for eight years under Barack Obama, the extremely tepid recovery. Then the Republicans came in, changed direction, and got the economy really roaring. Now we've got this inflation problem. Americans, of course, are afraid of it because it's like a a huge tax increase on everyone. Everything that you buy, most things that you buy now cost more. You get to spend more of what you work hard to earn on stuff that just costs more. And what the Democrats want to do, as I mentioned in the last segment, is spend trillions of new dollars. And they want to pay for some of it by raising taxes on the middle class while also giving a tax break to millionaires. It's, you can't make that up. And yet those are the nonpartisan analyses. Jen Psaki today said that the high prices, inflation, it's now a political cudgel. Yeah, no kidding, Jen. We'll talk to Peter Ducey about it when we come back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show, Friday edition. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is free every day if you miss the show as it airs. We now welcome back to our airwaves Peter Ducey, White House correspondent for Fox News Channel. Peter, welcome back. Happy almost weekend. 
Happy almost weekend, guy. Well, it was a very exciting day at the White House because Jen Psaki has recovered fully from her breakthrough case of COVID and she was back at the podium. I saw some of the clips circulating on social media. Do you think that she was most excited to get back to work because she gets to talk to you every day? (laughs) I unfortunately was not in there today. I will be there on Monday, (laughs) though, and uh, I'm I'm sure she's going to use part of the weekend just getting ready for that one. I'm yeah, she's preparing. I was breathless anticipation for the reunion. And Peter, I want to get your take on the White House messaging, because I'm sure you saw some of what she had to say today. Uh, The economy, inflation, supply chain stuff. I mean, these are real issues that are plaguing virtually every single American. And it's a really tough spot for an administration to be in because they don't really want to take the blame. They don't really have solutions, but they also have to recognize that people are hurting. And some of their previous talking points, like, oh, this is just transitory, they seem to be sort of shuffling away from those talking points and trying to plant their feet somewhere else right now. What are you noticing about the evolution of how they're talking about some of these economic challenges? Well, if you look at the evolution, they like to blame COVID for the global disruption, whether plants are shut down or people are too uncomfortable with the pandemic to go to work. But, you know, with the evolution of this, in the middle of the summer, they celebrated the end of COVID. Okay, Mm -hmm. it was a dark winter, but we did a great job with vaccinations and with masks. And now you guys can go about your daily lives. Uh, Independence Day is independence from COVID. Okay, that was four months ago. Uh, I don't it's hard to square how the same people that said we are now independent from COVID say, well, actually, the economy is uh, shutting down. But I, it's just this COVID thing that we have no control over. And so I, that's the part that I have the hardest time with. Mm-hmm. And I saw that I think it was yesterday the White House put out a chart and Part of this is what you're saying. You know, it's, it's not just us, right? There's these global disruptions, so don't really blame us. We're not alone. And they were talking about inflation in this case, saying, look, other countries are experiencing inflation as well. Here's a chart. The problem was their own chart showed that the American problem of inflation here at home is worse than any of the countries that they featured. So I'm not – it seemed kind of like an own goal there to highlight, you know, prices are going up, this is a problem elsewhere, when your own data shows that it's worst here. Yeah, and something – again, to go back to the summer when they were celebrating the economy coming back, they were taking credit. They said, guess what, America? Your whole family barbecue for the 4th of July is going to be 16 cents less than last year. Great. That's 16 cents. And I had a great time at one of the briefings with that. Okay. That's 16 cents at the 4th of July. This is about to be the most expensive Thanksgiving ever. And the stuff that you buy for Thanksgiving is expensive anyway. And Mm -hmm. uh, we don't hear about that. They're not coming out and saying, Hey, okay, well, it's going to cost you 50 bucks per couple more. No, it's, uh, well, this is out of our control. Yeah, it's it's funny. The triumphalism and the credit taking is now buck passing. And, you know, don't ask us. You know, we're working on it. But uh, pass pass Build Back Better because Build Back Better uh, will solve the things, even though uh, there are many economists and analysts saying, well, in, in fact, some of these provisions could make some of these problems worse. 
And Peter, I'm sure you are sharpening your pencil and thinking of all sorts of questions for the White House on Monday. Uh, One general area of interest to me is what we discussed here in the opening monologue on today's show. There are now independent analyses. There's, in fact, a Democratic economist who's pointing out that the large majority of millionaires would get a tax break under Build Back Better with the uh, SALT deduction coming back. So that's the opposite of Democratic rhetoric and campaign promises from Joe Biden about, you know, fair shares and that sort of thing. This is a direct uh, giveaway, a a gift to millionaires. Meanwhile, the left-leaning tax policy center has determined that roughly 30 percent of middle class households would get a tax increase under Build Back Better. I seem to recall that you were on the campaign trail. As a correspondent with the Biden campaign, did he not make some promises when it comes to tax increases on Americans? I happen to remember him saying many times since you asked that he was going (laughs) to cut taxes on Main Street and Scranton and not Wall Street in Manhattan. And nobody making under $400,000 was going to pay a penny more because uh, the millionaires and the billionaires were going to pay their fair share. It is not only inconsistent with what he said, but good luck getting people in Congress who like Bernie Sanders behind a plan that gives millionaires and billionaires tax cuts. It is the foundation, really, of uh, of his entire movement that without COVID uh, could have won him the nomination. Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's not just that, Peter, right? Because I think you'll have a lot of the progressives uh, up in arms about any provision that would benefit millionaires and give them a tax break. Then you've got the moderates, or the so-called moderates, or the relative moderate group of House Democrats. Are they going to want to vote for something that opens them up to attack ads that truthfully say so-and-so voted for a tax increase on the middle class? Because that's what the Tax Policy Center is saying will happen. 20 to 30 percent of all middle class households will see their taxes go up in 2022, then go up again in 2023 under this plan, I mean, it seems like you might get squeezed from both sides, but the math is already really difficult as it is. And you, if you start sort of moving the Jenga pieces around, you start to wonder, does the tower start to falter on this thing? So uh, that's a great point. And it just makes you wonder, why is it that the White House has been saying, uh, you know, certain taxes for the rich are going to go up, certain taxes for the middle class are going to go down and it's all paid for if it's not. And I think in looking at this and kind of scratching my head the last couple of days, you know, for months, the Build Back Better plan was this. Uh, it was the ticket to fixing climate change and <laughs> emissions. And it's the ticket to getting people back to work. And it's the ticket to uh, paid leave uh, and child care and at one time universal community college and at one time universal pre-k uh now it's the ticket to also fixing the inflation problem no, it, and it the supply no chain crisis they're just saying hey well, well just do this and it'll it's all going to work out don't worry <laughs> like it's, what's it, next what what <laughs> other problem could come up well i'm sort of i'm waiting so, for them I'm, peter i'm waiting for them to say that in order to secure the southern border we need build back better Right. In order to get some Americans home from Afghanistan, we need Build Back Better. You name it, Build Back Better fixes it. We are joking about this, but that seems like 
It, it is in strategy. line with what they have been <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> doing. It's, it's, it's wild to watch. I also want to ask you, Peter, about a question that you got in with President Biden what was it a week and a half ago or so on immigration since I brought up the border and these alleged negotiations on payments to illegal immigrants who were affected by the family separation policy under the previous administration and the dollar figure that had been reported in the Wall Street Journal was four hundred and fifty thousand dollars per person up to that amount. Biden bristled at the question, called it a garbage report, said it wasn't going to happen. And it really seems like the administration has been playing defense, backpedaling and trying to figure out what its story is ever since. What is the status of that right now? Because it feels like that blanket, almost angry denial by the president himself was walked back pretty quickly, and it's unclear what is going to happen now. As we best understand it, right now, uh, a lot of these border crossers, illegal immigrants who were separated from their family while the adults were being prosecuted uh, under the Trump administration, they've all lawyered up. And their lawyers, uh, who, in association with groups like the ACLU, are negotiating with the Justice Department and According to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, these plaintiff lawyers are telling them they expect these settlements uh, to be finalized within the next couple of weeks, by the end of November. So between now and, and this could be something because the White House really tried to walk it back, this could be your uh, like Black Friday news uh-huh. dump when people are not paying attention. But uh, up to... Somewhere in the they're not disputing six figures still. It's not four hundred fifty thousand. Uh, they haven't said that four hundred thousand is out of the question. Wow! Uh, and they think that that's going to save money because they think that these lawsuits, these illegal immigrants who are suing because they crossed and got separated from their kids, uh, they think that they're going to win millions in court. Whether that's true, I don't know. Yeah, I wonder but where, where they would they be holding to. those trials? Like, you know, if you go to like the deepest blue places to get people on those juries, maybe. But I, I would imagine if they if they do a news dump over Thanksgiving on these settlements, I'm just trying to picture being an average American family having just paid through the nose for Thanksgiving dinner and trying to figure out how this is going to go with inflation. And then the news breaks that your government and the Biden administration is sending six-figure checks to illegal immigrants. Um, that could get a reaction from some people. And perhaps the approval rating that's already not great for this president would head further south. I guess we'll see as that story. We're going to keep following it. I know you will as well on your White House beat. Peter Ducey here on The Guy Benson Show. He'll be back sparring with Jen Psaki and team next week. Peter, appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. See you, Guy. All right, that's Peter Ducey here on The Guy Benson Show. A lot more to get to today. Here on The Guy Benson Show, it is Friday. Stay tuned. Friday vibes on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. An absolutely maddening piece. WTOP News in Washington, D.C. This was from just a few days ago. Steam comes out of my ears when I read this story. It is about the mayor's office in D.C., and we know about their capricious edicts on COVID based on no actual standards or data that they can point to to justify. And, of course, those edicts are ignored by the mayor herself. 
just openly flouted. We've mentioned it before, right? She was putting in the mask mandate back in to place. She waited until the day after her birthday party to do it. Then she showed up the next day to a wedding and was not wearing a mask at length inside. Lied about that. She's posted photos of herself maskless indoors on her social media. It's a joke, but it's not a joke to businesses that are suffering because of it. Gyms, right, like fitness centers, are near the top of the list because no one wants to exercise in a mask. It's crazy. In fact, it can be dangerous. And these gym owners have been begging for some accommodation. We've talked about this before. This is your latest update. Like, what if we have a vaccine requirement? What if we space out plus the vaccine? Nope. Not going to work. So there was another letter sent by some gym owners, and media asked the Bowser administration about this. And the health director under Mayor Bowser, whose name is Dr. LaQuantra Nesbitt, she was asked if anything could be done to help. She said she was not inclined to spend more time responding to an industry that she said won't accept an answer it doesn't like. Well, they don't like the answer because it's putting them out of business based on not science. And she is just totally flipping the bird to these people because they're an annoyance to her. Because they're challenging this absurd power that she's wielding as they try to save their businesses. I know, how dare they? What a pain in the neck, LaQuandra. Quote, I'm a little challenged to make them comfortable because I think as an industry, I get the most letters from them. They're often accusatory, inaccurate, bullying. So this is just capricious on her part. She's basically admitting it. She's like, oh, I don't want to help them. I don't want to make them comfortable because they keep badgering me with these silly concerns about keeping their business afloat. Imagine being a small business owner, getting crushed and pummeled over and over again during the pandemic, and now you've got a city that's overwhelmingly vaccinated and an anti-scientific mandate put in, ignored by the person who put it in, and the totally unaccountable doctor, some bureaucrat calling the shots, is openly attacking you in the press because you keep asking her for guidance. He's like, oh, nope, you're in the gym, you're, you're blowing air all over the place, you're breathing hard. Here's another one of the quotes. Just listen to this quote. Think about the arrogance of this quote and also try to find, try to identify if you can, the science here. Spoiler alert, you can't. There's no science here. Here's what she said. Quote, when I feel that the district is in a good enough place and we have enough of our vulnerable residents, including our children, 5 to 11, who have a degree of personal protection, then I'll make the recommendation to the mayor to remove the indoor mandate. Okay, is that clear? That was the statement from the health director in D.C., when she feels personally that things are good enough, do we have any hard metrics for that? No. It's her feelings. Then she calls the children of Washington, D.C. vulnerable residents. They're not. Statistically, 
They are the least vulnerable people in the entire country. But that's one of the... She's using these kids as a human shield to defend her capricious orders. When I feel that we're in a good enough position with our vulnerable children, then I'll recommend something. Is that clear? This is just a tyrant. A petty little tyrant empowered by a mayor harming people's livelihood, harming people's physical fitness, and doing it for no good scientific reason, with no off-ramp, with any sort of standard that the public has any access to. There's zero transparency here. While the mayor herself clearly doesn't think that this emergency is justified because she demonstrates it over and over again in her own conduct. Absolutely pathetic. And I think a lot of what happened last week was in reaction to this sort of thing. In fact, I wonder, D.C. residents might get so fed up with this that the Democrats might only get 93% of the vote next time in Washington, D.C. It's hopeless. This is what you get. This is what you voted for, Washington. This is what empowering progressive Democrats will bring about. Enjoy it. I just feel bad for some of these small business owners just trying to stay alive and getting this type of reception from public servants is what they would call themselves. Really gross. Our next hour is straight ahead. A lot to get to, including Andy McCarthy on the Rittenhouse trial, plus a story that I think is not getting nearly enough attention. That's all coming up. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it is the middle hour here on the guy benson show as we are underway on this friday thank you for listening guy that's the website the podcast is free every single day at guy benson show We're doing the program from West Palm Beach, Florida. Now, I want to get into a few stats here and pieces of data on the last couple elections that we've been talking about, especially New Jersey, Virginia last week, and then looking forward to 2022. And on that latter front, let's start here. There's a new poll from Morning Consult and Politico that I find worthwhile. So, one of the data points that they've been tracking in this Politico poll is which party has an advantage on various issues. So, in this tracker, when President Biden took office in January of this year, Republicans in Congress were down five points on the issue of the economy, which is the number one issue to voters. Right, so they were down five points on the economy. That was an advantage, albeit a bit of a slim one, but an advantage for the Democrats. I would call it an unearned advantage because the Republicans built an amazing economy with tax cuts and deregulation, and it was only derailed by a global pandemic. 
Now, you think back to that 2019 economy, it was humming along, really was, cooking with gas, as they say, and then this uh, horrible intervention ground much of the economy to a total halt. In any case, it's a five-point advantage back in January for the Democrats in the economy. Today, that number is a 10-point advantage for the Republicans. So that's a 15-point swing on the economy among the American people in 10 months. And you think about that swing, 15 points, what does that sound like to you? It sounds kind of like a 13-point swing from the Biden margin to the Murphy margin in New Jersey. It sounds kind of like a 12-and-a-half-point swing from the Biden margin to the Yunkin victory margin in Virginia. I don't think it's a coincidence that some of these shifts in the double digits are all aligning with each other, right? There's something real happening beyond just a few states, right? This is not an accident. I think if the midterms were held tomorrow or, you know, next week, it would be an absolute bloodbath for the Democrats. I do. I think they would lose the House easily, and I think they would lose the Senate. But there's a year to go, a long way to go, but obviously the Republicans would rather be here, plus 10 on the economy, than where they were 10 months ago, minus 5. That's a big shift, and I mean, it's obvious why. I mean, you look at all the issues, labor shortages, inflation, people are not happy. Meanwhile, in this same poll, they specifically broke out suburban voters, because I think suburban voters are going to be crucial next year. As they were in Virginia, for example, and New Jersey is basically a giant suburb. That's the way the state has been described. We talked about Nassau County in New York, suburban county in Long Island. If you want to look at where the elections will swing nationally, it's going to be the burbs. And Democrats had really improved in the suburbs in recent years. A lot of suburban voters, especially, you know, white people, college educated, did not like Donald Trump. And went over onto Team Blue and voted blue for several cycles. And there was a debate, are the Republicans cooked? Are they kind of done in the suburbs, at least having a chance to win the suburbs? Or are the Democrats, is this sort of like uh, fool's gold for them? Right? Do Democrats now own the suburbs or are they simply renting the suburbs? Because of the Trump factor, well, we saw last week, some significant indication that the suburbs, at least to a certain extent, perhaps a large extent, are very much open to migrating back over toward the Republicans. So in this poll, they specifically had suburban voters. And let me just tell you some of these issues. On national security among suburban voters, Republicans are favored by nearly 20 points. On the economy, they're favored by 17. On guns, they're favored by 10. On immigration, they're favored by 12. On jobs, they're favored by 8. And even some of the issues where typically Democrats do better, energy, education, health care, these are single-digit close contests in the suburbs. That is extremely bad news for the Democrats. And when you think about education and how pivotal that was in Virginia, I saw this story today from USA Today. Just listen to the headlines. 
School districts across the nation are temporarily closing or switching back to remote learning because of issues caused by widespread teacher exhaustion, COVID-19 concerns, and the great resignation, meaning a lot of people are just leaving their jobs. Some of which, by the way, is connected to vaccine mandates. So the COVID-19 concerns in schools, I have beaten that horse to death. I will probably flog it some more in the shows to come. You know where I stand based on the science. I think to have shutdowns, closing schools in any way at this stage based on COVID-19 concerns is anti-child, anti-science, borderline abuse. But I was more struck by the first item on the list widespread teacher exhaustion. Now look, I have some very close friends and family members who are teachers. I had some fabulous teachers in public school growing up. I am not anti-teacher. I am anti-teacher's union, that's certain. And I also really struggle to do anything other than roll my eyes to the point that I'm worried like I could pull a muscle or something. Widespread teacher exhaustion. I think many people are exhausted in this country. I think people who had to go to work and show up every single day during the pandemic before there was any treatment or any vaccine, right, essential workers clocking in day in, day out to keep the country running, I bet you they're exhausted, especially with their kids sitting at home and they weren't sure what they were going to do with their kids because they had to go to work. That sounds exhausting. Many, many teachers did not go in to work to show up in person for more than a year. Teachers have the summer off and lots of days off and vacations during the year, right? Compared to if you're not a teacher, you know, how, much, how much time off do you get? How much paid time off do you get? How many vacation days do you get at work? For a lot of people, it's two weeks, maybe three. These teachers have probably all in but three plus months. And look, oh, they're making lessons plans. They're trying to adapt to some of these weird things that happened over the last year. They're concerned about their students. There's a lot of great teachers. I'm sure that there are very much exhausting components to the job, but there are exhausting components to almost every job. And there aren't many jobs where you can just collectively throw up your hands and say, well, you know what, we're just, we're just so tired. And then have it kind of just say, okay, well, we'll just do some mental health days. We just have too much exhaustion here. So we're going to close down the schools. After all the school closures and all the harm that's already been inflicted, give me a break with this. So between that and all the CRT stuff, and just the, the, it piles up. I think education, because obviously these teachers, some of the unions have not learned their lesson. They feel like, oh, there's, there's a new normal where they can just kind of call the shots even more. And there are many people, and not just Republicans, indeed quite a few Democrats, who are not happy with it. In the meantime, I wanted to focus in the latter part of this little segment here in the monologue on a very interesting New York Times piece that I was sent yesterday, written by David Linhart, who's done some really good work on COVID. This has nothing to do with COVID. It's about a study that was commissioned by a left-wing group. You know, it's a well-known pollster, but it was commissioned by a left-wing group. And what they were trying to find out was what motivates, what moves swing voters. 
people who actually flip back and forth, or low-frequency voters, right? They often don't vote. Sometimes they'll come out. What motivates them? Who are these people? Turns out there's a lot of working-class voters in this category, including Asian and Latino communities. So the way that they did this poll was they found these people, the low-propensity voters, the swing voters, and they asked them to react to five hypothetical candidates. They did not label the candidates. They did internally. But they had each sort of you know, fake hypothetical candidate have a little mission statement, right? a campaign slogan or a soundbite, and they would ask these low-propensity, low-engagement swing voters, does this message make you more likely to vote for this person or less likely? Or does it turn you on to this candidate or off from this candidate? Very interesting way of going about this. Interesting methodology. A little bit different than typical political polling, but that's maybe what's necessary to actually get a read on this particular sliver of voters, a crucial one. Especially in close races, these people decide elections. Reading from the Times piece, starting with this, quote, a central conclusion is that infrequent voters are not a huge Democratic constituency just waiting to be inspired by a sufficiently progressive economic message. Right. So this is one of the fantasies that we hear on the left all the time. Right. One of their slogans unofficially over there is when more people vote, Democrats win. Now. There was a huge turnout, for example, in some of these races in New Jersey where Republicans won. There was a record-shattering turnout for a gubernatorial election in Virginia. I mean, it wasn't even close. They blew it out of the water, and Republicans won across the board in all three of those statewide races. So maybe they need to think twice about that little slogan, which is really a boast, right? They believe, a lot of the progressives and the Democrats believe, that most of the people sitting home or not voting, if they did show up, would vote for them. And this study suggests otherwise, says that is not the case. These people hold a hodgepodge of different views, some liberal or progressive, some conservative. But again, a central finding was that these voters are not just Democrats in waiting who need to be motivated to show up. That is not true. Here's my favorite detail from the story. Among five different candidate soundbites presented to respondents, the worst performing one was what the pollsters internally described as a woke moderate. So this is the soundbite that these voters were given for this type of candidate. Quote, our unity is our strength and our diversity is our power. But for too long, special interests have blocked critical progress in addressing systemic racism, climate change, and access to affordable health care. We need creative leaders who will fight for our values, listen to the experts, and make real change happen. There were five hypothetical candidates with sound bites. That one came in dead last. It turned people off more than any of the other messages. In fact, three of the five messages turned them off. Only two of them turned sort of curiosity into intrigue that were making people warmer toward the candidate. But this one came in dead last. The woke stuff. And the reporter at the Times correctly notes that this 
sentence could have come out of a corporate mission state, right? These woke corporations constantly preening about diversity and equity and all this stuff and systemic racism, climate change is in there. Listen to the experts. A lot of buzzwords. That one came in last. So while Democrats continue to be caught up on Twitter, which is not real life and does not represent the country, and so many journalists are also in the, uh, that exact sort of milieu, the people who decide elections actively dislike it. I think that's beautiful. The other two categories and mission statements or you know, slogans from these hypothetical candidates, so you had dead last was the woke moderate, and then not far behind in terms of unpopularity was the woke progressive and the mainstream moderate. The only sound bites that worked where people were more excited about that candidate were two categories. The populist progressive, talking about fairness and a rigged system for the rich. That's kind of the Bernie Sanders stuff. Republicans and conservatives need to get ready to combat that type of messaging effectively because it is effective. And the other one that worked is what the pollsters internally refer to as the Republican message. It warned, quote, freedom is under threat from radical socialists, arrogant liberals, and dangerous foreign influences. That one moved these voters in the right direction. Unlike the woke stuff, that could be an object lesson. I'm hoping that the Democrats and their media allies are too blinkered to recognize it and just keep doing what they're doing. Because that midterm wave that might be building would very much be assisted by a Democratic Party that remains woke. As obnoxious and annoying as it is, it appears that it might be an asset to the Republicans. The Guy Benson Show continues after this short break. Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back here on the show on this Friday. Well, we mentioned yesterday the pearl clutching among some in the press that the judge in the Rittenhouse trial had made a joke about the supply chain and his lunch. Oh, it's terrible. You had reporters. What century are we living in? How can this how can this be? Keith Olbermann, who's completely lost it. I mean, he's just a, a lunatic, was calling on the judge to be prosecuted. I mean, I don't really know what's wrong with some people aside from just having been broken by politics. It's sort of sad, actually, to watch. Here's what he actually said. Cut 28. Well, let's hope for 1 o'clock. I don't know. The, uh, hope the Asian food isn't coming. It's on, isn't on one of those boats in Long, uh, Long Beach Harbor. That's a supply chain dad joke. Mediocre. Needs some work. But they were treating it. People were literally tweeting like, this man needs to put on his hood because he's clearly a member of the Klan. And some quote-unquote comedians and comedy writers were just spewing out some of the lamest stuff going after him, like worse than that joke. Worse than that joke in terms of quality and humor. CNN had a story with a headline about the inappropriate joke. They quoted someone early in the piece about how this could be violence-inducing, right? Violence against Asian people. I don't know who believes this. I guess the, the folks over at CNN, although there might be fewer folks at CNN soon. I saw a scoop today. It's being reported at Deadline.com. CNN reportedly thinking about going to a totally different 
business model moving forward, going back to being just a news channel that reports the news and not sort of this MSNBC clone freak show? And if that happens, you might have a lot of people over there maybe seeking new work. Maybe they're brushing up on their resumes and sending it off to MSNBC. We'll see if that happens. They seem pretty addicted to the current model, even though it's not working. Their ratings are awful. That's a media trend to follow, and we'll do so here on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here, and happy Friday, one and all. We are joined once again here on the program by Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple best-selling books. And Andy, I know we just had you on the program a few days ago, but we had to get you back to talk about the law and also foreign policy. Welcome back. Thanks for making time. Guy, it's my pleasure. Before we get to the Rittenhouse trial and your analysis, I have to ask you about this story because, to me, it's almost this shockingly undercovered story. I don't know why it's not a much bigger deal. Apparently, the U.S. Embassy in Yemen was overrun by Houthi terrorists. This is an Iran-backed militia. It's a terrorist group that had the terrorist designation rescinded by the Biden administration just a few months ago. This was a Trump designation, obviously a correct one. The Biden people wanted to undo everything Trump, so they took this group off the terror list, and now they have taken over our embassy in Yemen and apparently taken hostages, local workers who, lo- who worked at the building. What is the significance of this, Andy? And do you have any sense on why this is not a much bigger story, U.S. embassy, hostages, terrorist group, all of it? Yeah, I, I think, Guy, that uh, I, I mentioned to my friends at National Review, this morning that I'm getting that 1979 feeling all over again, which, of course, is famously when the uh, we had the beginning of what became known as the Iranian hostage crisis, when uh, Shiite fundamentalist Iranians stormed the U.S. Embassy and kept Americans, dozens of them, hostage for uh, over 400 days until President Reagan uh, took power. So... I think it's in every important way, it's an analogous situation. My sense of why it's undercovered is that in 1979, it was shocking to people that an Islamic fundamentalist movement could actually take over a country and then do what it did in attacking an embassy, which is an act of war, and it was a shocking event. Uh, We've had enough water under the bridge with that sort of stuff over the last 40 years that I don't think it's as shocking anymore. And the other thing is, Americans knew Iran pretty well because of the Shah and because of the longstanding alliance between the United States and the, and the Shah of Iran. So when the Shah got pushed out by the fundamentalists, that was a, a real attention-grabbing thing. Whereas I think Yemen makes people's head hurt, you know, because mm-hmm. what's going on in Yemen, people in America don't really know much about Yemen. Total basket uh, case. But, Yeah, and, you know, you have a Saudi-backed government, which is fighting a proxy war. It's actually a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, who are the main uh, rivals in the Persian Gulf in that region. And the Houthis are the Iranian proxies. And this has been going on for years, as you mentioned. It's It's a bloody, bloody abomination 
uh, of a mess. And I think people just have not yet caught up with how uh, how complicated and remote that seems to Americans. But they will. Um, the other thing is that in the Iranian hostage crisis, it was Americans, like American citizens for the most part, uh, who were captured and held hostage. Uh, as you just pointed out, they've released, the Houthis have released a number of people out of the embassy, but the people they've kept mainly are Yemeni citizens. In most of our embassies around the world, um, the, the, they're staffed by people who live in the country where the embassy right, is, right. and there aren't that many Americans. So I think that's part of it. No, I think, well. that's, I, I think that's I, all I think, sound analysis, Andy. I just think, you know, we have Americans left behind in Afghanistan. There are hundreds of them still there, thousands of U.S. legal residents still abandoned in Afghanistan by an administration, a president who said he would do no such thing, and then he did. And then we had the same president take this exact terrorist group off of the watch list or off the terrorist list, and that group then proceeds to sack an American embassy months later. I mean, it's, it is – I don't know what else you can really point to to illustrate a failing foreign policy than those two examples, but those are just two of the more striking examples currently in play. Andy, let's shift to the home front and Kenosha, Wisconsin. I know that you have been covering on TV and writing a lot about this Rittenhouse trial. We have been talking about it throughout the week. I've given my thoughts. I had a lengthy Twitter thread last night sort of organizing all of my thoughts, if people want to go check that out, at Guy P. Benson. But what are your big takeaways? You're a former prosecutor yourself. What do you think of the prosecution, and what do you think of the judge really uh, sharply, in sort of a shocking way, scolding the prosecution on multiple occasions? Well, I don't like the case, Guy, because I think it's an assault on the right to self-defense and the, and the right to uh, carry firearms. I think ultimately that's the, that's the push that's behind it ideologically, and I don't think prosecutors should act ideologically to begin with, but I think there's a lot of that in this case. Um, as far as the prosecutors and the judge, I don't think that this has gotten a comprehensive coverage, because you would believe, based on what I've seen the last couple of days, when the judge did ream the prosecutors out on multiple occasions, and I think the prosecutors deserved it. But th the thought that this judge is, like, in the pocket of the defense is stupid, frankly. Yes. Um, he hasn't made, you know, he's made rulings so far, or, or has failed to make rulings. He didn't throw the case out. Uh, at the end of the government's case, even though it's a very weak case. Um, and importantly, he didn't strike from the indictment before trial the misdemeanor gun charge that the state is hoping to uh, convince the jury somehow vitiates Rittenhouse's uh, right to defend himself. So he's made rulings or not, you know, or, or refrain from making rulings that have actually been helpful to the prosecutors. Both sides. That said... Yeah, yeah, to both sides, but I just think it's, it's been one-sided coverage of the judge. He's actually, his rulings have gone both ways. But the other thing, Guy, is every prosecutor, and we're talking in this case about very experienced prosecutors. These are not green guys who just, like, haven't been around the block enough times and made a mistake. These are highly experienced prosecutors, and everybody knows from the government standpoint that if you go near the fact that the, the defendant has relied on his Fifth Amendment privilege and not tried to explain himself up until the moment that he gets on the stand, you are playing with fire in a trial. That's reversible error to comment on the defendant's use of his Fifth Amendment reliance on his Fifth you know, the, Amendment. The judge, and just to and, jump in, the judge was clearly furious about that, and I saw people saying, oh, look at this, uh, this blowhard judge. 
But a lot of attorneys were like, no, that is, if anything, almost an understated response, even though it was quite sharp from the judge. They said that is a blinking red light no-no at trial. Yeah, I'd also add to that, Guy, this is kind of an inside baseball thing, but I think you'll understand it. Um, for people who are not trial lawyers, and I was a trial lawyer for a long time, trials are really hard. You know, people work uh, close to 24 hours a day, 18, 20-hour days are not unusual. It's a big strain on the court. It's a strain on the resources of the court. It's a strain on the government, on the defense lawyers, even on the, the accused. It's, a, you know, a highly anxious, uh, anxiety-ridden time. If you have an eight-day trial, and at the end, a prosecutor does something that he knows is flirting with reversible error. The, the amount of damage that that causes to the system and the amount of wasted effort that that, that could portend is really something that, that people ought to, you know, if you were in the system and you realize what the weight of that was, you could see why the judge would get so angry. The thought of having to do this case all over again, possibly. And that's probably why he said no to the mistrial, because... He's like, no, you, you can't do all of this and then almost potentially get a gift on the prosecution side of a mistrial and go through the whole thing again, potentially uh, almost unthinkable. And we'll see what happens. Probably some closing arguments upcoming and we'll see how long the jury takes to make a decision. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of people primed for a decision that they think would be justice that they may not get. And we might be back to where we started with a burning city of Kenosha. I hope that's not the case, but there has been incredibly reckless coverage and rhetoric around this trial. Andy McCarthy covering a lot of it at National Review and for Fox News as well. Andy, always appreciate your time and insights. Guy, have a great weekend. You too. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. Well, we talk a lot about woke stuff and cancel culture, and one of the episodes that we've been watching and tracking is Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle, the comedian, he has said some things in his comedy bits that have angered certain elements of the woke community. They're very easily angered, right? They're triggered, a word that now is, in fact, triggering and banned by these people who come up with the words that we're supposed to use or not use, and it all gets very exhausting. So Chappelle is enemy number one, and they've tried various ways to get him canceled. He's uncancelable because he's so big and so wealthy and so successful. I do worry about less successful people, right? And the risks and comedic decisions that are made based on the example that people try to make out of Chappelle. Right? If you don't have his influence and his money and his fame, people get canceled all the time. And I know that they tell us over on the left, oh, this is overblown like move on more gaslighting but as we shared yesterday there was that poll a national poll on this question and overwhelmingly like 70 percent of the country says cancel culture has gone too far and i think that is abundantly clear except to the radical fringe that are trying to run the show by just exerting sheer power so there was a whole freak out over the Netflix special. Netflix stood tall, thank goodness. But you had employees carrying on and you know walkouts and people outside the headquarters chanting and all this stuff. There have been various other events that Chappelle was invited to where he's no longer invited. 
because people are afraid that the mob's going to come and make a big problem for them. So Chappelle, you know, he, he is not canceled, but some of these events are getting canceled. Here's the latest wrinkle in this story. Reading now, at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Georgetown, students don't want Dave Chappelle's money. The high school planned a fundraiser with its famed alum for later this month. So Chappelle went to this school. He has talked about this school being a huge element in his life. He said it saved his life. He's one of their famous alumni. And he was coming back to do a fundraiser for the school. And to raise money for a new theater that would be named after him. But the school has now quietly canceled the event. This is the report that I'm reading. Due to an uproar over remarks that he made about transgender people in his recent Netflix special, The Closer. This is in Politico. Here's the backstory. Some students tell Politico that their peers got into a heated debate with faculty after being told they were expected to help assemble an exhibition to honor Chappelle on the same day as the fundraiser. Many of their classmates identified as LGBTQ+. The students were uncomfortable supporting the comic, and some even talked about staging a walkout if the tribute went forward. So the school canceled the fundraiser, even though the invite had already been sent out to multiple patrons. Chappelle, a graduate of Ellington, has credited the school, as I said, with saving his life. He's donated a hundred grand already to the alma mater. He gave the school one of his Emmy Awards. He's delivered a commencement address at the school. And he has held a master class for students and has gone back and routinely visited the school. So he has been an exemplary and successful alum. He has helped with his time, and with his money. And because some of the things that he says are offensive or transgressive or, you know, banned, not allowed, under the current woke rules, and some of these activist students adhering, of course, very closely to these rules as best they can, they made a giant stink. The school said, hey, we're doing this thing, we're going to honor this alum, we're going to do a big fundraiser for the theater, the theater program, And I guarantee you, it was a small number of outspoken left-wing progressives who realized this is their moment to stand up or whatever and speak truth to power or whatever. Like, they they dream of these moments. Here's a big, high-profile cancellation that they can be a part of. It's actually, like, really gross. Deeply ungrateful. I'm not sure the students, you know, can be forced to participate in some celebration that they don't want to. I would not say that would be appropriate. But to go crazy and to organize this agitation to get the whole thing canceled is outrageous. It's ridiculous. I'm not surprised. Are any of you surprised? Like, could you sort of sense where this story was going? A few people get all angry and they start talking about how they're unsafe and all the harm and and they, you know, whip each other up and they are, you know, in this, according to this report, heated debate with the faculty. 
And the school, and again, this is where I end up laying most of the blame on the school. Because children are going to be children. And then these children grow up to be adult children. What you need is adults to assert authority and to say your concerns are noted. If you don't want to come to the event, you don't have to. But we are having our fundraiser for our very generous alumnus, Dave Chappelle. An extremely successful man of color, by the way. If you don't want to come, don't show up. This is moving forward. But instead, these sniveling people slink away in fear of the wokes. And the cancellation happens. And they all, of course, insist cancel culture isn't real. Except when cancel culture happens and they're all part of the bandwagon. They say, well, this is deserved. This is how the wokes win. By gutless people caving. And it happens far too frequently. And I think what it is going to take in a situation like this is for students who don't agree with the cancelers to say so loudly and get involved. For parents to get involved. For other alumni to get involved saying, well, excuse me, if you are going to do this, I'm not sure I'm interested in being a benefactor anymore. How does that taste? That might get the school's attention. But what the woke crowd, what the cancel mob is counting on is fear. Saying, oh, well, if you disagree with the mob in this case, then you're transphobic or you're homophobic. You don't want to be one of those bad people. Maybe we'll do to you what we're also doing to Chappelle. He's got a lot more money than you do, probably. There are students like, I want to go to college. I want to get good recommendations. I don't want to get branded a racist or whatever it's going to be. So they shut up. That is how the racket works. It works too well, too often, like 70-75% who believe that cancel culture has gone too far based on the poll we reported yesterday lose these battles because the 25 or even less percent of people who are like on board for what's happening, no, let's have more cancellations. They are brazen bullies who get caved to, and they know it. And sometimes the second they get punched in the nose right back, then an equilibrium is restored. That takes just a little bit of fortitude that evidently a lot of people just don't have. And as long as that continues to take place, this society is going to continue to be pushed around by these people, these miserable people. final hour of the guy benson show coming up fridays with cat is next you don't want to miss it straight ahead it's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world washington dc it's time for the guy benson show happy hour sponsored by the finnish long drink finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to america visit the and now here's your host guy benson Happy hour on a Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday to each and every one of you. We have made it together this far. Almost the weekend, just one hour to go, and you don't want to miss it. Here on the Guy Benson Show, our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcasts always free. Lots of ways to listen live, of course, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, including Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. 
Other options at GuyBensonShow.com. Plus, as I mentioned, that podcast, bonus Benson coming up on the weekend. And the happy hour sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. I'm down here in Florida. The long drink is everywhere. In fact, I just got a text from one of my friends in Illinois yesterday. They were trying all four varieties of long drink, having been introduced to the original by me a few weeks ago. So they're in. They're in on the long drink train at this point. You can get aboard as well if you'd like, if you're 21 plus, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you. Or order online. TheLongDrink.com. Joining me now in studio up in New York is our friend, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld! and co-host of the Tyrus and Timpf podcast. It is Cat Timpf. Cat, good day to you. Good day to you, too, as well, Guy Benson. <laughs> it's good of you to be here. Um, before we get to some of these stories that I had prepped for you, I do want to ask you, I know it's now, what, uh, almost two weeks since Halloween? Yes. But you did some pretty serious costuming. Yes, thank you for noticing. Year. Yeah, yeah we, t- we, tell us about that. It was a, a very, very, very lot much preparation. Uh, like, like for the act, okay, so... You know, uh, listeners may not know. I, I, everyone knows I'm married, but there's like a, a, not a third in the marriage, but not not um, named Keith, who lived with us for a while. He's my best friend. So we all went as um, I was Tanya Harding. He was Nancy Kerrigan in like amazing, amazing drag, like mm-hmm. killed it. And then my husband had you know like a club, like a, a bus ticket and like a you know club, um, and. We, I mean, we were, we got exact replicas of their leotards. Um, we got professional makeup. Like, uh, I mean, he his drag transformation took like four or five hours to become Nancy Kerrigan. <laughs> to and become, he's, yeah, and he's he's screaming. Yes. He's crying. All I assume night. shouting why. All, yeah, all night he was running around. Why? <laughs> why? Um, it, it, honestly, it was, it was amazing. It, it was, I was really proud, you know, I was really, really proud of me. Um, because it's a struggle for me because my birthday is on October 29th, right? So like Halloween always, happy birthday. thank you. It always takes away from my favorite holiday, which is my birthday, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I just decided to take my power back. By having, <laughs> by having such a great costume, <laughs> if anybody was able to listen to that and not physically fantasize about punching me in the face, then congratulations! <laughs> Congra- I mean, it is a very good. Like I saw the photo on Instagram mm-hmm. at Cat Timp. I immediately liked it, as did like nine thousand other people. I'm not exaggerating because mm-hmm. it is really good. I mean, it is elaborate. Yes, you very much carry off the uh, Tanya Harding thing. Yes, and. Poor Nancy Kerrigan getting smashed in the knee in this uh, sabotage attack. Uh, that's that's a very impressive Nancy Kerrigan. I will say, uh, your husband here, Cam, um, he his face doesn't look like his heart is really in it when it comes to uh, you know injuring this this competition ice skater. He seems a little bit he seems a little bit um, like a half. Like smile he's for not the camera. committing to the bit quite enough. I know we've yes. had that discussion. We had that discussion repeatedly, um, but we've moved past it as a couple, uh-huh. and we're going to stick it out. We're going to stay together. I'm but- glad. <laughs> well, I, I would hope so. Yeah. But this is very good. This is what a, a callback to, am I recalling correctly, that it would be 1994? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure of the exact year, but 
Yeah, I mean, it's a call. And look, it, but we, another thing that Keith, so he injured his hand really badly uh, about a month ago at his job. He coaches gymnastics. And I was like, dude, why not your knee? That would have oh, been way like, better really, for the costume. Really, really, you know, commit to the bit. Yeah, but, yeah, I, I mean. By look, the way, I was right. It was early 1994. Well, congratulations. Thank and you by for, the way, thank you for you your know, service. Yes, you're welcome. Um, and did you know where the attack took place? Detroit. Yes. Yeah, Kobo, Kobo Arena. That's another tie-in to you. Of course. Yeah, exactly. I'm getting more impressed with this Halloween costume. Oh, the bus ticket, if you zoom in, it's like has the date of my birthday on it, and it's a bus ticket from Massachusetts to Detroit. Like, we had that. We had a, my friend who's a graphic designer do that. We went all in did to take my it? power back. Yes, they did. Okay, because yeah. a lot of younger people might not really remember the story. Well, because I, Tanya came out. So I think mm, that, like, okay. younger, a lot of that movie was huge. So people who might not remember that happening, because um, it was a huge story, obviously, like, in the Detroit area. Like, it was, it was, it was a national story, but especially because oh, it, it happened locally, happened locally there. So I remember it, even though I was a little. Um, but, you know, for, like, younger people that, that like, even... Um, there were some people like in their 20, like 20s at my party. They were like, oh, you're the girl from I, Tanya." I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's yeah. real. <laughs> she's real. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So like people did get it. Very good. Applause. Now Thank let's you. stick in Michigan because we covered this story very carefully yesterday on the show. Big. And I have been brought on to discuss this a lot, which I don't know what it says about me, but okay. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, the drunk AG in your home state. Yeah. Yeah. So I did. I want to correct myself. I misspoke yesterday. I had misidentified the woman in the photo. I had seen only part of the photo. I said that she was a Michigan State fan. It was a Michigan no. State home game. She indeed is a Michigan fan, wearing the blue and the maize and looking absolutely miserable. So I, I'm sure I disagree with most of what this woman has to say in her platform as an elected Democrat. I don't care about that. What I care about is this story is not really a story in my book. And any of the quote-unquote outrage, like even the quotes, there were a few conservatives or Republicans quoted in some of these stories trying to like feign outrage and and be all angry about this. Like, you know, I don't even believe that you feel the things that you're saying that you feel. Like, it was such a lame attempt to score a point. And the way that she got out in front of it with her statement, which I thought was very straightforward and kind of hilarious... I I find this very relatable, and I'm on her side. Okay, so I agree and disagree. I'm outraged about one thing and one thing only, and that is that she claims to have only had two Bloody Marys. That is yeah, the one thing in which I'm outraged. And look, it's, it's because, you know, look, she was like, I'm going to be transparent. It's like, but you're not. You're gaslighting me, okay? And like, unless those Bloody Marys were made with, you know, Kalanapin, that you had more than that, and that's okay. And nobody asked you the number. Be like, I had an empty. She could have said a few. Yeah, I had. I was on an empty stomach. I was at this tailgate. All the congealed hot dogs look gross. So I had some Bloody Marys, and I didn't realize how strong they were. And I got a little too messed up. I'd been locked up. You know, we've been all in lockdown. I was excited to darty, get my day party on. I got it on a little too hard. And that case i would have like bought merch right like in that case (laughs) i would have been completely i would have built an altar to her in my home of like you know the goddess of the darty right like i would have been so like yes girl because we've all been in a situation like that we all have and if you haven't then then i don't want to talk to you because you're boring right (laughs) 
And uh, like, right, like, I don't, like, I wouldn't get along with anybody who has two Bloody Marys at, you know, a tailgate. Not because there's anything wrong with that. And that's you and that's how you hang. Just because you and I won't get along. You she know? could be, I mean, look, here's the thing. We don't know for a fact that she's not a total lightweight. I, yes, you do. Yes, you do. You can give a toddler two Bloody Marys, and you know they'll still be able to waddle out the door. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... believe me, because my parents did it to me all the time. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I think that she, and we said that yesterday. The the one part of the statement that I don't believe is the quantity of alcohol consumed. And I don't like that she was so specific right. in that lie because right, if she had no one glossed asked. past it, yeah, nobody all she asked. Just Nobody, she, no, it wasn't like she was being interrogated, which also, by the way, if like, if you watch episodes of Cops, when the cops come over, they always say like, how much you have drink? There was like two beers. Two. Like, <laughs> they always say two. Two. And it's not, and they have like a crack pipe hanging out of their mouth. They're like, I don't know how that got there. So like, listen. They're don't like, put, sir, sir, right. we count 16 beer cans in your yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, oh, oh those aren't mine. Like, <laughs> you know, like don't put yourself in that category, but you know, like, and don't be like, listen, I'm getting like. Either lie and be like, I was on new medication, or be like, yo, no, I darted too hard. I was really excited to darty, huge darty day. And then I, I got, I dartied, I over dartied. Oh, and then Just, her team lost too, yeah. which is, I think, also probably insult to injury here. I want to ask you relatedly here, Kat Timpf. Yes. You are not, and this is somewhere where you and I do not see eye to eye, just in terms of, you know, interest. So you're very into trashy reality shows, yeah, huh, whereas I huh, am not. Yeah. And I am very into sports, and you are not really into the sports. No, hockey I like, but that's it. Right. Um, yeah. Would you or have you done football tailgating? Because producer Christine has never done football tailgating, and I think she would enjoy that. Oh, I don't care about, I don't I don't know the rules of football, because I grew up in the Detroit area, so like, we had the Lions, so mm-hmm. I know, what am I going to pay attention to that? I mean, that is technically football. Yeah, but but is it? Um, you know, I, I'm not a masochist, so I just never got into it. And, um, you know, but a tailgate, you can, ta- I mean, I think we should tailgate more things. Or just tailgate nothing. Just tailgate, period. Like, that's the activity. We're yeah. having a tailgate for what? For the tailgate. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I, I went um, when I worked for Barstool, and they had, like, you know, the Super Bowl. I went, you know, to, to the Super Bowl for Barstool. And well, also, also, for, also for Fox. No. But did I go to the—I didn't go to the game. Did I go to the tailgate? You're damn right I went to the tailgate. I don't need to go to the game. The tailgate is where all the magic happens. And what is your ideal tailgate fare? I've done, you know, I've done it all, right? Like, I've, I went, when I went to, like, Army-Navy, too, like, uh, West Point, oh, or some of the West Point fun. games. Like, the, they, they have, like, everything. They have, like, chili. They have, you know, the, someone had, like, alligator. Like, they had everything there. Like, it was an like, amazing spread. Tacos, everything. And, like, a full bar. That's ideal. I'm also not that picky. I went to, like, a, you know, a Redskins game when I lived in D.C., and it was called, they were called the Redskins. And someone, like, I just had a fifth of Jack, and I was sitting in a chair, and I had a great time, okay? Great time. The um, whole fifth. I didn't drink a whole fifth. I'm just saying oh, I my didn't. My goodness. I'm just saying That's I didn't. Like, you, no. You should, if you did, you could be like, I am running for attorney general, <laughs> and I, madam, shall drink you under the table. No, I mean, I, I, look, I did not drink the whole fifth. I just didn't need a cup, okay? I'm low-maintenance, environmentally friendly. <laughs> I drank out of the fifth like, you know, John Kerry would want me to. Mm-hmm. Um you know, yeah, it's, it's, but it's like, you know, it's, it's awesome. Or you drink beer. If you're on an empty stomach, you stick to beer. Yes, and food, you got to eat some food. Yeah. Right, yeah. if you want to ask me, have I ever had too much to drink at a tailgate? You carried a fifth, I will plead the fifth. But oh, I think, come on. Come on, I, die B. I think you know the answer. Yeah, here. we all do. America knows the answer. I had, I had two drinks, that's all. I yeah, only had two drinks. Yeah, but don't do that. <laughs> 
We have to end that. The shaming of that can happen for two drinks because it does not. Cat Tim, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld every weeknight at 11 p.m. Eastern Time, wildly successful. Her podcast also, Tyrus and Tim, foxnewspodcast.com. Cat, have a great weekend. You too. Talk to you soon. It's the Guy Benson Show happy hour. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's a happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. We want to bring you this clip from last night on Tucker's show. He had Edward Durr on. Edward Durr, of course, is the incoming state senator representing a district down in South Jersey. He has unseated Steve Sweeney, who is the Senate president in New Jersey, a Democrat. He's been in office for basically 20 years. I think it's 19 and counting. And he is one of the most powerful Democrats, or was, because technically still is for a while, one of the most powerful Democrats in the entire deep blue state of New Jersey. But there was a red wave. That was Sweeney's own word that we mentioned yesterday. He conceded the race. He did so publicly. A reporter asked him about it, and he just seemed still shell-shocked. He said there was a red wave, and a lot of people turned out to vote. And he was swept away by that red wave. And it was a four-point victory by Mr. Durr, who spent very little money on his campaign. The reported number was in the ballpark, 150 bucks. Right, a lot of that on donuts. There were some other expenditures related to the race, all in. The figure I saw was less than 10 grand, which is nothing. I mean, in, in politics, 10 grand, an unknown guy, a truck driver. We mentioned yesterday, CNN is like dredging up bad tweets from the past of this guy as revenge for him beating their team, right? The Democratic Party, which is CNN's team. And so Tucker had Mr. Durr on the show just to talk about the upset victory. And at the end, Durr was describing the phone call that they had because Sweeney called him to concede. It sounded like it was very conciliatory. Sounds like, you know, pretty a classy move, finally. It took him a while to concede, but it happened. And then this little detail at the end, I don't really think that Durr meant this as a dig, but it definitely comes across as savage, and Tucker loses it. Cut 31. Have you talked to Sweeney since you dethroned him? I mean, how baffled is he? Yes, yes. We, we had a uh, phone conversation yesterday after he had given his uh, press conference to the media and he congratulated me and just wished me luck to do well for South Jersey. So he was a gentleman about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was a gentleman. Good for him. And, and we, we, you know, and like I told him, I said, you know, if he ever needed anything, just give me a call, you know, because I'm, I'm his representative now. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's like, oh, well, thanks for your concession. And by the way, if you need anything, you're my constituent. I represent you, so you can give me a call and, you know, my staff will get on it. <laughs> Again, I think that he was being totally genuine about that. Like, I don't think that was snark, but it can be interpreted as just a brutal line. Yeah, let me know. I'm your senator now. If you need anything, you know where to find me. This is the office number. I think they're probably not changing the phone number. You probably have it memorized. <laughs> This is a good line. By the way, one other thought about these tweets. I'm not going to defend them, some of them in particular. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't good. Um, also, this man spent his career driving trucks, which I'm not saying in any remotely judgmental 
or sneery way. I'm just saying, if you've met many truck drivers, and I've met a few through the years, I wouldn't say that they are known for being genteel or all caught up in social niceties, right, or social graces. Is that fair, generally? So the fact that there were some perhaps off-color problematic tweets in the history of Edward Durr, just a private citizen and a dude who got fed up and decided, you know what, I want to run for something, I'm going to go for it, and then he won. I mean, it's not surprising. I also don't think it's some sort of disqualifying outrage. I know some people are, you know, breathing into a paper bag. They're so shocked or pretending to be so shocked by this. Come on. He was a man who had had enough. He's a citizen legislator. I know that that makes a lot of elites very nervous. How dare this average person run, let alone win? Someone asked him, how are you going to govern? You don't really know any of this stuff. You're unfamiliar with all of it. What's that going to be like? And his response is like, yeah, I don't really have much experience. We're going to figure it out as we go along. But I can't do worse than some of these other people. (laughs) Is he wrong? Spot the lie there. I challenge you to spot the lie there. Give me a call. I'm your representative now. Oh, that's good. That's the future Senator Edward Durr to you. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Earlier in today's program, we caught up with our colleague, Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent. And we chatted about many things Biden-related. Here's part of my conversation with Peter Ducey. Well, it was a very exciting day at the White House because Jen Psaki has recovered fully from her breakthrough case of COVID, and she was back at the podium. I saw some of the clips circulating on social media. Do you think that she was most excited to get back to work because she gets to talk to you every day? (laughs) I unfortunately was not in there today. I will be there on Monday, (laughs) though, and uh, I'm I'm sure she's going to use part of the weekend just getting ready for that one. I'm, yeah, she's preparing. I was breathless anticipation for the reunion. And, Peter, I want to get your take on the White House messaging, because I'm sure you saw some of what she had to say today. Uh, the economy, inflation, supply chain stuff, I mean, these are real issues that are plaguing virtually every single American, and it's a really tough spot for an administration to be in, because they don't really want to take the blame. They don't really have solutions, but they also have to recognize that people are hurting. And some of their previous talking points, like, oh, this is just transitory, they seem to be sort of shuffling away from those talking points and trying to plant their feet somewhere else right now. What are you noticing about the evolution of how they're talking about some of these economic challenges? Well, if you look at the evolution, they like to blame COVID for the global disruption, whether plants are shut down or people are too uncomfortable with the pandemic to go to work. But, you know, with the evolution of this, in the middle of the summer, they celebrated the end of COVID. Okay, Mm -hmm. it was a dark winter, but we did a great job with vaccinations and with masks. And now you guys can go about your daily lives. Uh, Independence Day is independence from COVID. Okay, that was four months ago. Uh, I don't it's hard to square how the same people that said we are now independent from COVID say, well, actually, the economy is uh, shutting down. 
But I, it's just this COVID thing that we have no control over. And so I, that's the part that I have the hardest time with. Mm-hmm. And I saw that, I think it was yesterday, the White House put out a chart and Part of this is what you're saying. You know, it's, it's not just us, right? There's these global disruptions, so don't really blame us. We're not alone. And they were talking about inflation in this case, saying, look, other countries are experiencing inflation as well. Here's a chart. The problem was their own chart showed that the American problem of inflation here at home is worse than any of the countries that they featured. So I'm not – it seemed kind of like an own goal there to highlight, you know, prices are going up. This is a problem elsewhere when your own data shows that it's worst here. Yeah, and something uh, – again, to go back to the summer when they were celebrating the economy coming back, they were taking credit. They said, guess what, America? Your whole family barbecue for the 4th of July is going to be uh-huh. 16 cents. Less than last year. Great. That's 16 cents. And I had a great time at one of the briefings with that. Okay, that's 16 cents at the 4th of July. This is about to be the most expensive Thanksgiving ever. And the stuff that you buy for Thanksgiving is expensive anyway. And Mm -hmm. uh, we don't hear about that. They're not coming out and saying, hey, okay, well, it's going to cost you 50 bucks per couple more. No, it's, uh, well, this is out of our control. Yeah, it's it's funny. The triumphalism and the credit taking is now buck passing, and you know, don't ask us. You know, we're working on it, but uh, pass pass build back better because build back better uh, will solve the things. Even though uh, there are many economists and analysts saying, well, in, in fact, some of these provisions could make some of these problems worse. And Peter, I'm sure you are sharpening your pencil and thinking of all sorts of questions for the White House on Monday. Uh, One general area of interest to me is what we discussed here in the opening monologue on today's show. There are now independent analyses. There's, in fact, a Democratic economist who's pointing out that the large majority of millionaires would get a tax break under Build Back Better with the uh, SALT deduction coming back. So that's the opposite of Democratic rhetoric and campaign promises from Joe Biden about, you know, fair shares and that sort of thing. This is a direct uh, giveaway, a a gift to millionaires. Meanwhile, the left-leaning tax policy center has determined that roughly 30 percent of middle class households would get a tax increase under Build Back Better. I seem to recall that you were on the campaign trail as a correspondent with the Biden campaign, did he not make some promises when it comes to tax increases on Americans? I happen to remember him saying many times, since you asked, that he was going (laughs) to cut taxes on Main Street in Scranton and not Wall Street in Manhattan. And nobody making under $400,000 was going to pay a penny more because uh, the millionaires and the billionaires were going to pay their fair share. It is not only inconsistent with what he said, but good luck getting people in Congress who like Bernie Sanders behind a plan that gives millionaires and billionaires tax cuts. It is the foundation, really, of uh, of his entire movement that, without COVID, uh, could have won him the nomination. Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's not just that, Peter, right? Because I think you'll have a lot of the progressives uh, up in arms about any provision that would benefit millionaires and give them a tax break. Then you've got the moderates or the so-called moderates or the relative moderate group of House Democrats. Are they going to want to vote for something that opens them up to attack ads that truthfully say so-and-so voted for a tax increase on the middle class? Because that's what the Tax Policy Center is saying will happen. 20 to 30 percent of all middle class households will see their taxes go up 
in 2022 and then go up again 2023 under this plan. I mean, it seems like you might get squeezed from both sides, but the math is already really difficult as it is. And you, if you start sort of moving the Jenga pieces around, you start to wonder, does the tower start to falter on this thing? That full interview with Peter Ducey, White House correspondent at Fox News, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free, the entire show, every day, on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the Friday home stretch, we're talking food. I know, that's a surprise. And it's straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here from West Palm Beach, Florida, where it is actually a little bit overcast, but hopefully the weather will clear up over the weekend. I'm here for an event, and I do want to talk to you about food. As we mentioned right before the break when we were plugging the website, GuyBensonShow.com, the free podcast. Bonus Benson on the weekends, of course, always in demand and always on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. We like to have our food segments. Producer Christine, off today. Maybe we'll have to get her to take this quiz because there was a food-related quiz that I'm going to get to in just a moment, but sort of as a an introduction, if you will, to that topic, an entree even. There was a video that went viral on social media. It's young people in New York or from New York going and traveling and eating, dining at a Cracker Barrel for the first time and filming themselves eating the various offerings at Cracker Barrel. So these are city kids trying Cracker Barrel, filming it. It's on the Internet. Some people are roasting them for their reactions. Let's just listen together. Cut 27. I've never had a deep fried steak. It just sounds like I'm going to have a heart attack. Uh, this does not look good, <laughs> to be honest. It doesn't look like a steak at all. But I do not know what country fried steak is. It's kind of salty. It's a little bit like a it tastes like the worst hamburger I've ever eaten in my whole life. And it went on and on. And look, I'm not here to say that Cracker Barrel is sort of a zenith of fine cuisine, but there's a place for Cracker Barrel, I would say. And that place is just off a highway on the interstate. You're very hungry and you want to go to an absolutely identical building to every other Cracker Barrel you've ever been to and walk through that little general store and look at all the candy and other little knickknacks and then order extremely affordable food that comes out quickly. I would not want to eat there regularly. I don't think, with all respect and love, I don't think it's terribly healthy, right? So the kids were onto something there. But I also don't think it, it like tastes bad or is gross. I unapologetically like the Cracker Barrel, although it's a once-every-few-years treat. And it is always in the context, for me, of a road trip, a long road trip, where you want a quick sit-down dinner and nothing more, and some comfort food. That's really it. And they've got the little games on the table. right? There's that one with the little triangle of holes with the sticks, like the little golf tees. That one's always a puzzler. Anyway, some people are saying, oh, this is elitist. This is rude. 
A lot of Americans love Cracker Barrel, and these kids are, you know, making fun of it or sneering at it. I mean, I don't think we have to go that deep. I think these are kids experiencing a place that they can't really experience in the place that they grew up, and they're checking it out, and they're kind of, you know, mugging for the camera and whatever. I mean, maybe there's like a hint of, you know, what do these weirdos out here in America eat? But for a lot of people, it's affordable, and it's tasty, and I happen to agree that it's both of those things. And that is the wind-up to this story. Someone sent it to me. It's a food quiz where it asks you a bunch of questions about your eating habits. And it's like, would you want to eat this food or not? And it was a wide array, right, from like chili, hot dogs, I think maybe pizza was in there, and then maybe some some higher-end options as well. And I have... Pretty broad taste, to be honest. I'm not a picky eater. I've never been a picky eater. There's a handful of things I don't like. A small handful. Like olives. Like olive oil, good. Olives, no. It's one of the few things that I won't eat. Although, if it's like chopped up olive in a sauce of some sort, like on pasta, or perhaps even one of the ingredients, let's say on a bruschetta, I don't hate it so much that I won't eat it. But I would not seek out olives, and I wouldn't eat them just like, you know, popping these olives, or even in drinks. Not really a martini guy to begin with. So there's like a tiny, very short list of stuff that I don't like. But the way that they phrased these questions in the food poll was, you know, would you be excited? If I'm, I'm paraphrasing, right? I took it a couple days ago. But would you be excited to eat this thing? And you just... Vote on one, and then it brings you to the next one, and probably maybe two dozen. And then at the end of it, they give you your results on the food choice test. And I guess they were trying to gauge how your tastes align with certain socioeconomic classes or brackets. So there were upper class tastes, upper middle class, middle class, lower middle class, and lower class. And then they rated how often your selections align with each class. And I am pleased to report that the verdict for me was, quote, your food choices could not be tied to any one social class. And I think that's, of course, correct. And I also think it's a little bit ridiculous. Why would someone, for example who is indigent or poor or on the lower end of the income spectrum, why would that person not like or be, you know, excited to eat, you know, a steak with truffle butter or something or lobster macaroni and cheese? I mean, what's tasty is tasty. It doesn't ask how often you eat these things. It's like, would you want to? And why would a super rich person, some millionaire or billionaire, not want to eat a hot dog or regular mac and cheese? I like both of those things. And so, and I don't know what they qualify as. Do hot dogs count as lower class? Like, I think that's a little bit ridiculous. So I'm not necessarily 
buying into the uh, the science here, or the social science behind this, but I guess it's one of these things where you're curious. And I have a pretty even distribution. I have slightly higher results in the upper class category and the middle class category. And then basically from there, just a little bit below, almost identical, upper middle class, lower middle class, and lower class. I think perhaps the reason that my upper class quintile was a little bit stronger than three of the others was I'm a big fan of sushi and like ahi tuna and that sort of thing. It's just, it's to my taste, one of my favorite things to eat, right? If I had a final meal, it would probably be an elaborate sushi feast. And I would guess that they're tying that into an upper class preference. And because I was saying yes eagerly to all of those types of things, that probably tipped the scales just a little bit. But I'm well-rounded according to this test. And perhaps based on how much I eat, a little too well-rounded in other ways. That's why I Peloton basically every day to keep it, uh, keep it under control. I'm at a hotel here, and they do, I did check it out, they do in fact have a Peloton bike. So I'm now sort of psyching myself up here after the show to go work off the Wendy's that I had for lunch today. Yep, I had my normal Wendy's. Spicy chicken sandwich, extra tomatoes, and a Coke Zero. I am a predictable creature of habit in some ways. I was starving. I was like, oh, there's a Wendy's. Yes, let's do that. So now i got to go pay for it on the bike. Quiet, Wyatt, by any chance, did you take this food choice test? I did, Guy. I did. And uh, my results were 67% lower class. Interesting. So that is a a very dramatic tilt for you. Like, I was kind of even across all five. You had two-thirds of your preferences in one quintile. Why? I I guess because you do have pretty simple taste in food. I think that's fair to say. I think simple, and, I mean, I'm a sucker for any fast food or just your traditional cheeseburger, hot dog. I mean, I... You know, I mean, the only thing I think that was considered upper class on that test for me was like lobster or any type of seafood. Everything else I kind of, you know, stay away from. Now I'm dying to know what producer Christine would get. Because producer, you know, she, she sometimes is very predictable, other times not so much. Like I could actually envision a situation where she ends up with, I don't know, maybe a bunch of upper class results which would be hilarious, because I think she kind of considers herself salt to the earth. Was French onion soup on the list, I wonder? We'll have to go back and revisit that, because we know how much she loves French onion soup. The problem is, I'm getting ready to go to the gym, but talking about these things, I'm just getting hungry. Something in my brain happened when I said lobster mac and cheese, and why it said lobster again. I need to redouble my resolve here to go to the gym, then I'll have dinner. How about that? It is Friday. It is the weekend. Have a great weekend. Check out Bonus Benson on the podcast, of course, free, GuyBensonShow.com. Back here for a very busy week next week. D.C. Monday, Florida Tuesday, Wednesday, Chicago Thursday, Friday. That's what's up ahead on the Guy Benson Show. But as I said first, have a great weekend. We will talk to you next week.
Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.